0: Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. If it's your first time, then welcome, man. We're so honored to have you. I hope you felt at home today. I hope you felt like somebody was expecting you today, man. As you leave today, make sure you stop by our Connect Center and get your free gift just for joining us today. Well, if you haven't figured it out, maybe you've been trying to problem solve in your mind and decide what is going on at the gathering with that screen this morning, then what is happening is you are seeing up here what we normally see down here. The curtain has been pulled back. You thought that I memorized lots of my message, that our our musicians knew all the words, but the truth is this is usually here, and actually now, right here, is showing what's normally up there. So we came in this morning, our projector wasn't working at all, and, uh, and our, our incredible production team uh, has been driving themselves crazy, trying to figure out uh, what was going on, working hard, problem solving, and ultimately, uh, we got to this place, and this was as far as we could get. We had to have church somebody. Come on, because you know we got to start on time so we can get done on time. Come on, lunch is waiting. And so, uh, and so that's why you're seeing that, and I'm going to be seeing uh, these incredible slides that our creative team has prepared today down here. It's a real treat for me. Sorry, that's all you get, but now you'll get my timer clock as well, which says i got 26 <laughs> minutes to go. This is like a TED Talk all of a sudden. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh no. How many of you believe I'm going to make that 26 minutes? Come on, somebody. Let's believe in the name of Jesus this morning. All right. Well, we are in uh, week three of our series called Identity. If you've just now joined us for the first time, we've been talking about um, culture through this series and how culture ultimately shapes who we become. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the southeast and, Back in, back, back in my day, just a few years ago, growing up in the Southeast, it was a very Christian-oriented culture. It was, it, was a, it was a part of who we are in the Southeast. We call it the Bible Belt. But that is changing. Culture is shifting. Our expectations for one another, our beliefs, our tolerances, are all shifting and changing. Our expectations for one another are changing with the culture. And so in this series... What we've been seeking to answer is, when culture shifts, who will we become? We've been studying the life of Daniel to learn how to stand firm and love well in a culture that contrasts Christianity. We've been looking at the life of Daniel, who was a young noble living in Jerusalem when Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the city and took all the royals and all the nobles to go live in Babylonia in the capital city of the empire of Babylon. And Daniel was faced with confrontation after confrontation and opportunity after opportunity to either give in and become who culture was telling him to be or to stand firm in who he believed God created him to be. He could stand against the culture he was in or he could love them well while standing firm in who he knew he was. And so we've been learning through this series how to do the same. We've been learning that as Christians... We can, we can be in the culture without being influenced by the culture. We've been learning that we don't have to isolate ourselves as followers of Jesus. We don't have to withdraw from culture and, and not be around it, not get around people who don't follow Jesus, not be around people who are different, who believe differently, who, who, don't, who, who don't like what we believe. We, we've learned that in this, in this culture that is ever so more starting to resemble the culture of Babylon, this This culture that contrasts a biblical worldview that we don't have to isolate and draw away, but rather we can influence the culture that we're in without being influenced by it. That's the goal, is to learn how to influence culture without it influencing us. Because we will either set the culture or reflect the culture. We will either set the culture or reflect the culture. We will either be a thermometer Or a thermostat. A thermometer adjusts to the temperature of whatever room it's in. A thermostat sets that temperature. And as a follower of Jesus, I believe that the calling He's placed on me, the calling that He's placed on His church and on us as Christians is to set the culture, not reflect the culture. John 17, verse 15 through 16, as Jesus was in the garden praying the night that he was arrested, he prayed this prayer for us. God, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Jesus doesn't ask God to take us away from the world that would contradict what we believe. Jesus doesn't ask God to keep people from us who would challenge our faith, who would challenge Our beliefs. Instead, he says, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but let them be in it without being of it. Protect them from the one who would confuse them. And so, our goal today is to expose what I believe is the single route to ungodly culture. I want to expose the strategy that our enemy, and today I'm going to talk about it, so make no mistake, we have an enemy. There is an enemy in the spiritual realm who seeks nothing more than to steal and kill and destroy. There is an enemy in the spiritual realm who wants to confuse you. Today I want to expose the strategy that he has used since the very beginning, and I believe it's rooted in Babylon. You see, Babylon is more than an ancient city. Babylon is a mentality. The story of Daniel, Babylon is a literal place. In history, Babylon is a literal place. But throughout the Bible, we see Babylon as a mentality. Over and over again, the imagery and the description of Babylon appears in Scripture, not describing the empire or the city or the place, but describing the mentality that comes with it. Today, I want to talk about this Babylon mentality. It shows up in Genesis in the very first conversation that Satan has with man in his conversation with Eve. He, he appeals to the Babylon mentality. We see it in Genesis chapter 11 verse 4 when man begins to construct the tower of Babel. It says, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth you see the babylon mentality is about me the babylon mentality the mentality that our culture is so deeply embracing is the worship of self the pursuit of self the desire for self elevation in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, when God destroys the first tower and scatters people all over the world. You see, the Tower of Babel is what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 11 here. It's what it's talking about. Now, you, I don't know how much into history you are. I love history. And what you may, not, may or may not know is that the Tower of Babel is a historical place in the city of Babylonia, Baghdad, Iraq. Today, the ruins of the foundations of the Tower of Babel are still there. It was in one of the main buildings in the capital city of the Empire of Babylon. It was 14 stories tall, a ziggurat, one building laid on the foundations of another, and they just kept going higher and higher and higher. Now, the foundations that we can find today are rooted in the 6th century BC, but the Bible tells us that there was a tower that preceded that one by the same name. There was a city that preceded Babylon by the same name and it's rooted in this word babel god scatters the destroys the tower and scatters the people and it says in genesis 11:9 this is why it was called babel because there the lord confused the language of the whole world babel means confusion and it's the root of this word babylon see the enemy has been using the babylon mentality to confuse our identity since the very beginning. And he will continue it until the very end. Almost all sin begins with the Babylon mentality. So today I want to call it out. I want to lay it out plainly so that you can see it. Because if we can see it, we can denounce it. If we can see it, we can avoid it. If we can see it, we can recover from it. If we can see it, We can find something better away from it. I want to call it out so that we can see it this morning. The first lie that Satan tells in the garden to confuse Eve's identity is this. He leads her to believe, I am all about you and God is all about himself. This is the lie. Satan weighs all of his bets on our pursuit of our own self-interest. And he leads us to believe that everything that he wants is for us, to glorify us, to give us a kingdom, to make our name great, to lift us higher, and that everything God wants is for him. And we believe the lie. So he confuses our perception of God and ourselves. He convinces us that our interests are what's most important, that, that the things the enemy leads us to do are for, about us, for us, make our lives better. And that what God would lead us to do requires sacrifice, would make us an outcast, requires rules, and makes life harder. And our culture has swallowed this lie whole. It's absolutely full of this kind of confusion. You see, we call Satan the great deceiver, but his greatest deception is not an outright bold lie, not an opposite of the truth. What he would do is confuse the truth. What he would do is merge half-truths with half-lies, confuse us about who we are, rather than make us believe something entirely different. You see, the biggest lie of the devil is to convince us that we know more about what's good for us than God does, and that we care more about ourselves than God does. And this mentality leads us to question God, to accept parts of the Bible, but not the parts that challenge us. Why would God put parameters around sex? If it feels good, do it. It's not hurting anyone. It's, it's just a hookup. It's, it's just between me and the computer. It's not hurting anybody. And so I'll accept the parts of the Bible that make sense to me, but the parts that don't make sense, I don't need. See, we believe that we know better than God. We believe that we've got a greater understanding than God does. We elevate the idea of self, self self-care, self-appreciation. These things are permeating our culture. The words beginning with self, honor yourself, take care of yourself. Here is the motto of Babylon. I am and there is none beside me. We, We elevate self in the Babylon mentality. We are self-adoring. We say things like, I'm on a journey right now to learn how to love myself first. I'm on a journey right now to care for myself first. I can't, I can't get too involved because before I really could try to know you, I've really got to know me. And, and so I'm just on a, on a journey right now to learn how to love and adore me. You see, Satan confuses things that are healthy with things that are unhealthy. It's good to learn to love yourself. Because you are a son or a daughter of the King. But we shouldn't adore ourselves over God. In fact, what God would have us do is know and rest in the knowledge that God adores us rather than just knowing that we adore ourselves. Do you see the difference? Knowing that you are adored by your Creator versus learning to adore yourself. Or we consider ourselves over others take care of me first. There's a self-empowerment movement going on in our generation right now, the power of me. But this confuses the purpose that God placed inside of us and makes it all about me instead of its true intention, which is to glorify God and serve others. We are self-building. I can take care of myself. I am empowered to take care of myself. I don't need to join a life group. I can find freedom on my own. In fact, I need to take this journey for myself before I can really get involved. I've really got to work on some things for myself, get myself to where I want to be before I can engage in community. Before I take the masks off, let me take a season to take care of me first. We believe we're self-building, that we can care for ourselves. that the best way for us to grow is to invest in ourselves. But the reality is that we need community. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit and community together. Jesus tells a parable about two houses being built One being built on sinking sand, and when a storm comes, it washes away. One being built on a solid foundation that can withstand even the most difficult storms of life. The self-building person builds their home on sinking sand. When the storms come, it can't hold. But one who builds their life in community, in the church, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the life-changing message of Jesus, in who God says they are, Builds on a solid foundation. We're self-indulging. If it feels good, do it. Don't deny yourself the pleasures of this life. Do what feels good. But self-indulging leads to idolatry. And the boundaries God places around pleasure are for our benefit because while we can see moment to moment, He can see the whole picture, but the enemy warps this view tells us that God keeps it from us so he can have it for himself. It's the same thing he did in the garden. If you read Genesis chapter 3 and the the story of the fall of man, the first lie that man believes about themselves, Satan tells Eve that God doesn't want you to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he wants to keep it all for himself. He just wants to keep all the good stuff for himself. Eve, you need to go take care of yourself. See what that tree will do for you. And we believe it. And we still believe it. And it comes with the same consequences. Hurt, shame, guilt, brokenness, relational pain. Now, maybe you like to come to church to be encouraged. And you're just not feeling all that encouraged yet. Listen, come back next week. It's going to be really good. We're going to talk all about how to love well in our culture. I'm just telling you right now, before we can get there, we got to sit here for a minute. We've got to be uncomfortable. Because here's the problem, is I don't believe that this mentality only exists in our cultures that aren't influenced by the church. See, I think this Babylon mentality, this obsession with self, I believe it's a problem just as much in the church as it is out of the church. We elevate ourselves and we lower God. We believe God doesn't love me unconditionally. I can I can earn his love, or I can lose his love based on my behaviors. We believe that God isn't for me; that He's for Himself. We believe God wants too much from us, and so we pick and choose what we will out of this book. We believe that God is like a is like an afterthought, like a hobby. Even in the church, we have this culture where everything we do that we're motivated for, that we live for, is pursuit for ourselves. We're building ourselves. We're building our fortune. We're building our career. We're building our interests. We're building our hobbies. And then on Sundays, we take a moment to give a little bit to God. We give Him some worship. We give Him a little bit of time. We listen. But I I need you to hear this, that this is the Babylon mentality. We elevate ourselves. We lower God. We elevate ourselves we lower God. We treasure ourselves more than we treasure Him. And we forget that everything in this book, every word, every letter is for you. God did not write this book for His benefit. The Bible doesn't exist just for God. This is the story of the relationship between God and man. This is the story of the way that God pursued man from the moment He created him. And never, ever stops. This is a better way to live. It's not just a better way to live. It's the only way to live that leads to satisfaction, that leads to meaning, that leads to joy, that leads to all the things that we try to fill ourselves with on our own. You see, the Bible was given to us as a gift. Here's the way to live. Here's here's the story you need to understand your Creator. Live your life the way that you were made to live it, so you can find the purpose you were made to live in, so you can find the satisfaction that you were created to enjoy that comes from a life lived to glorify God and serve others. You see, God doesn't want too much from you. He gave everything for you. You believed the lies of the enemy. I I believed the lies of the enemy. I lived for myself. And wound up empty and longing for meaning and separated from God by my sin. But he sacrificed his own son so that he could have a relationship with me. So I could find my purpose and live with meaning. See, God's love for us is deeper than anything we could ever imagine. We are treasured among his creation. But this is the Babylon mentality. This is the mentality of our culture. More and more every day. And it's everywhere. It's in every culture. It's cultural in every culture. It's, it's in the hearts of the people of the church. It's in the hearts of the people who oppose the church. It's everywhere. And here in Asheville, it's becoming more and more at the center of who we are. Over the last couple weeks, we've been learning from Daniel and his three friends. Our first week of this series, we talked about Daniel and and him, him standing firm and loving well in a situation that was very difficult. And then last week, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and going into the blazing furnace and standing firm no matter what. And we've been learning from these men who deeply followed God with their lives. But this week, I want us to learn from King Nebuchadnezzar, old King Nebi himself the king of Babylon, the the, the emperor of the Babylon empire. It starts uh, in chapter 4. In verse 4, we see this narrative. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. You see, the Babylon mentality oftentimes leads us to a place where we believe we're genuinely happy. We believe we're genuinely full. King Nebuchadnezzar, I imagine, as he's writing these words, he he was remembering stepping out onto his great marble balcony. I don't know if they had marble then. Go with it. Puts his hand on this golden railing and looks out over his kingdom. He sees the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know, just in all their majesty. The Tower of Babel. There's a royal procession going by, and he's thinking... (laughs) You've done pretty good for yourself, old Nebs. You've done pretty good. And he's feeling pretty contented with the life that he's built and the things that he's done. You see, so many people living in this Babylon mentality believe they have contentment. They look at their possessions and their accomplishments and feel like things are going really well. Until one day when they're not. Nebuchadnezzar has this nightmare That he wants interpreted. He asks his wizards to come, and they look in crystal balls and throw bones on the ground, and they can't figure it out for some reason. And so Nebuchadnezzar remembers that in his kingdom is a man named Daniel, and Daniel receives visions from God, and that he can interpret things through God. And so he calls for Daniel. Daniel comes into the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar tells him about this dream that he just keeps having over and over again and over again. The whole narrative is in chapter 4, but to sum it up, he's dreaming that there's this great big tree that towers over the rest of the forest. It's a majestic tree, a beautiful tree. And this tree gets chopped down. And it says the tree is chopped down, but the stump remains. The stump stays right where it is. In fact, it says the stump has roots of iron and bronze that can't be torn up. And this tree goes into the wilderness and lives with the cattle in the wilderness, eating the grass. And King Nebuchadnezzar has this really weird dream about a tree that eats grass. That's cannibalism. And then he brings Daniel in and asks Daniel to help him. It's probably not. It's a different species. I don't really know much about trees. But anyways, Daniel comes in to interpret the dream. And in verse 22 it says, Your majesty... You are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Oftentimes, the pursuit of self will result in riches, will result in a level of contentment, will result in you achieving the things you've worked hard for. And we think that is all we ever wanted. But I am telling you, that life comes to a moment, comes to a day where this confusion in your identity will lead you to chaos. It says, verse 24, Daniel interprets the dream. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals, you will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives, to them, gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Remember the stump, this is important. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel gives him the warning that his dream has delivered. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, nah, I'm good. Keeps on living the way he was living. And 12 months later, exactly a year later, King Nebuchadnezzar loses his his mind. He loses his sanity. His confusion leads him to chaos. He's taken off the throne. He goes out in the wilderness and he eats grass. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what's going on. And for seven years, he's lost his mind. You see, confusion in your identity leads you to chaos. Things may go well for a while when you serve yourself. Maybe even for a long time. But they won't stay that way because you weren't created to serve yourself. And this book doesn't just offer a way of living that is a good idea. It's a way to live that leads to satisfaction. Every other road leads to pain, brokenness, death, and chaos. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylon mentality walks your life into chaos. I don't know how it would show up for you, maybe relationally. Maybe you've spent your life pursuing the right career, believing this would would satisfy you in the way that you needed, and in the meantime, your marriage and your family has fallen apart. And suddenly, what felt like the most important thing doesn't seem that important anymore. Because when you come home, you come home to brokenness and chaos. Chaos. Maybe for you it was, a, it, was, it was a pursuit of the approval of people and a desire for people to know who you are and for people to love you and for people to want you and for people to, to adore you. But at the end of the day, you realize that even with the accolades of people, you have a deeper longing for relationship and relationally your life is in chaos. I don't know what it looks like for you But this confusion of your identity, this this lowering of God and elevation of self will lead your life from confusion to chaos. But there's good news. And the good news is the stump. You see, the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar, in his dream, he saw this stump that couldn't be torn out, couldn't be removed. And Daniel says that stump means that when you get your priorities straight, when you look to the heavens and glorify the Most High God, new life will spring from that stump. You need to know, God doesn't grind the stump. God doesn't pull out the stump. He doesn't remove the stump. It does not matter how long you have lived your life in pursuit of Babylon. There is always the opportunity for you to return to the right place. There is always the opportunity for new life to spring up out of your chaos. There is always the opportunity for clarity to come into your confusion. It is never too late. It is never too far. There is no place you can go where God cannot call you home. Your roots are indestructible. Don't miss this. It's never too late to correct this way of thinking. Look at Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. The title of the message today is Sanity Restored. And then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt... And glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride. He is able to humble. Sanity restored. Three things that we can commit to today. To correct this mentality in our hearts. Three things that we can do today. To like King Nebuchadnezzar. Have our sanity restored. Commit to them with me this morning. Number one is this, I will exalt God. I will exalt God. Worship God with your words and with your life every single day. Listen, start by worshiping Him with your words. Worshiping Him out loud with your words. I think something interesting happens when we worship. You see, I think when we start worshiping, when I start worshiping, singing songs of praise and worship. In the beginning, I find oftentimes that my problems are big and my God is small. My problems are big and my God is small. Why won't this projector work the way it's supposed to work? Why won't this thing do? It's a machine and I am its Lord. Why will it not obey me? (laughs) My problems are big and my God is small. How will anybody connect in worship today? How will anybody be able to focus on on the God they are worshiping with this sort of distraction going on? My problems are big, and my God is small. But over the course of one five-minute song, something miraculous happens. You see, a shift begins to take place. We got to the end of that first song, and I didn't care about that screen anymore. I didn't care about the formatting anymore. It didn't matter to me because over the course of worshiping our king, suddenly our God becomes big and our problems become small. Our God becomes big and our problems become small. You see, worship corrects God's position in your heart. It sets Him in the right place. Worship the one you were made to worship. First Chronicles says the eyes of the Lord are searching high and low in search of true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit, And in truth, worship Him with everything that you are and mean it with every word that you say. And I promise you, something will begin to shift in your hearts. Exalt the name of your God. Really, not just in your heart. Uh, You might say, well, well, Pastor, you know I do. I I exalt the name of my Lord right here in my heart every single day. That's great. Do it out loud. (laughs) Do it out loud. Do it in a way that is undignified. Do it in a way that's a little bit embarrassing. You know, it's football season. And uh, Asheville's not a big football town, I get that, but I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and everywhere in South Carolina, there's just two teams, and fall is all about either Clemson football or people who are wrong about football. I won't tell you which one I'm a fan of, but here's the thing. Growing up in South Carolina, I've been to both stadiums. I've been to Death Valley, where Clemson plays, and I've been to Williams-Brice, where the Gamecocks play. And you know what I've noticed at both of those stadiums? What I've noticed at both football stadiums is people exalting something they believe in with all of their heart, with all of their minds, with all of their bodies. They are raising their hands towards the heaven. They are singing out the name of the team that they love the most. Go Tigers! They are spelling the names of the things that they love. Go T-I-G-E-R-S. We can spell, we can spell, we can spell. And, and, and they, they, are, they are dancing, they are jumping around, they are shouting at the top of their lungs. And then those same people on Sunday morning, are like this. I thee. I thee. <laughs> Stoic. Bored. Listen, and, and singing that song too, am I right? Come on, South Carolina. <laughs> you know what? If we had hymnals, we wouldn't have had these projector problems this morning, so maybe I shouldn't pick on them. <laughs> but anyways... I think that we should exalt our God with more energy than we do our favorite football team. I think that we should praise our God with more of our bodies than we do our favorite band, our favorite team, whatever it is that you exalt. I encourage you to make sure you exalt the name of your God a little bit more. When you come into this place to worship, you know what? It's okay to move a little bit. It's okay to let yourself go a little bit. It's okay to get a little bit weird in worship. Somebody say, get weird in worship this morning. We we don't mind. We don't mind if you sing off key at the top of your lungs. It's the reason we play the music so loud. Listen, the Bible says make a joyful noise. Some of you guys are making a jarring noise. But that's okay. That's all right. Your neighbors can't hear you. The music's too loud. Worship him with everything that you've got. Raise your hands in worship. Move a little bit in worship. There's a story in the Bible where David is the king, and and I've been watching The Crown lately on Netflix. It's fantastic. Queen Elizabeth's been through a lot. Bless your heart. She's watching online right now, praying for you. And, um, And you know, one of the things that's remarkable to me is the expectations placed on The Crown the expectations for respect and dignity on royalty. and King David felt it too, but when it came to the presence of God, he did not care. There's a story where they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time in a long time, and the ark represents the presence of God, and David was so excited and so filled with worship over this moment that he's in the streets, half naked, dancing his brains out, just going all crazy, saying, I'll become even more undignified than this to praise my Lord, my King. And I'm just telling you, we want you to, to be fully dressed, but, it's, but we also want you to get a little bit undignified in church on Sunday morning, exalting the name of your God. Psalm 145, one says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Exalt the name of the one who is worthy and it will place him in the right position in your heart. Do it every day. Drive to work. I, I, I love country music, old country music. I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, but one of the things that I do is I try to make sure that the balance is tipped when I'm driving, to, that, I, that I worship more than I sing the Folsom Prison Blues that I sing praises to my king more than than I sing about Sunday morning coming down. You know, I'm just saying. I'm not saying you need to do that. But wherever you've got time, make sure you're worshiping your king. Build a playlist. Worship him with everything you've got. Second, I will acknowledge God. And they took the timer off. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I will acknowledge God. I will acknowledge him. Look at verse... 34 and 35, it says, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven. This king says, My kingdom is nothing compared to His kingdom. And the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back His hand or even say to Him, What have you done? Take time in your daily devotion to set your heart in its right position with God. God's ways are better than my ways. I may not always understand Him, but God is always good. I acknowledge you, God. God knows better than I know. Lord, I don't understand why this is the way it is, but I trust You, and I give You my trust. Have faith that God is good even when it doesn't work out in your favor. Acknowledge His place as the Most High God. His place as the Creator and your place as the created. See, the enemy wants you to elevate yourself. Wants you to think that you know a better way, that that the way of living that you want is better than what God wants for you. And you correct this by learning to acknowledge God. James 3, John 3.30 says, He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He must become greater and greater. This is my daily prayer. He must become greater and greater. And I must become less and less. God, more of you, less of me. More of you, less of me. I acknowledge my position. I acknowledge my place before you, Father. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What are you so puffed up about? What, what have you done what what do you have that god hasn't given you and if you all you have is from god why act as though you've accomplished something on your own listen i know who i am without god i remember who i was before him i was broken I was hurting, I was lost, I was empty. I didn't think that I brought anything but pain to the people around me. I didn't feel like there was a future for me. I didn't feel like there was purpose for me. I didn't feel like there was anything ahead of me that was anything but bad, and then I met him. And I know who I am in God. I know who I am with God. I know that in him I have purpose. I know that in him I am a new creation, that in him I have meaning, that he will do great things through me because of his power that is at work within me. I know who I am with God, and I know who I was without him. And so I can't do anything but acknowledge who he is and who I am not. I've got to believe that what he wants for me is better than what I want for myself. I've got to trust him when it's hard to trust him. We've got to acknowledge God. Everything I have is his. I've got a little prayer that I pray when I do my budget. Yep, I even get spiritual with my money. And I'm sitting there, and I I, I get paid um, every other week, and and so that's not right. It's like twice a month. Anyways, whenever I get paid, I do my budget, and I sit down, and I I think it's biblical and important to know where every single penny of your money goes. I think that's a stewardship principle, and so I sit down, and I I budget every penny, and I always start with the tithe. You see, my conviction is the first 10% goes to God. It's always the first item in my budget, And I do this because I believe it's what God calls me to. I do it out of obedience. I do it because God's kingdom position is more important to me than my financial position. I believe that 10% is God's and that keeping it from God is stealing from God. But don't mix up that belief with the belief that the other 90% is mine. See, I believe 100% is his. And so when I sit down to do my budget... First, I give that 10%, and I say, God, here's 10%. Use it to build your kingdom. Father, use it in a way that makes you famous. Use it in a way that glorifies you, Father. Here's 10%, but God, all of it is yours. And so, Father, help me to steward the other 90% well, because everything I have belongs to you. Acknowledge God in everything that you do, and you will place him in the right position in your hearts. Last thing is this, I will humble myself, I will humble myself, humility is first in the kingdom of God and it is last in the kingdom of Babylon, humble yourself, my accomplishments are His, my blessings come from Him, my trials move me closer to Him, pray these things every day in humility. I had a pastor tell me once that the man who lives on his face and the man who leads from his face can never fall from that position. Serve God. Serve people. Make it all about Jesus. I've got a prayer that I pray before I come out on this stage every Sunday from right over there. I just say, God, it is a privilege to be on this stage. Thank you for choosing me. If you ever don't want me, if you if you need somebody else just tell me and I will step aside because this moment is yours. God, I need your spirit to fall on me fresh right now because without you this won't be any good. I need you. I humble myself before you. Live in humility. Live in humility and you will live counter to the culture that is trying to confuse your identity. Live in humility. And you, and you will walk out of confusion and into clarity. Live in humility. It says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't waste your life fighting to make yourself great. It'll leave you empty and broken and tired. I've heard it said before, if I don't look out for myself, who will? God will. God will. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. It says in in James chapter 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't have to look out for yourself. He's already looking out for you. You don't have to watch out for number one because you are His number one. He cares for you in a way you can never fully understand, you can never fully comprehend, and I've got to tell you, it is a miracle that He has chosen us. I think about all the ways that I I don't deserve His love. I I don't deserve His grace, His forgiveness. But the same God will come to this earth in Jesus humbling Himself a below everybody around him, being a simple tradesman, three years of ministry, never sinning, never making a mistake, and he goes to the cross so that he can, he can bridge the gap between who I am and who he's called me to be. Goes to the cross, takes my sins so that I can enter into a relationship with him. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. You don't have to lift yourself up. You don't have to believe the lie of this culture that you've got to build your life, you've got to build a kingdom for yourself, that you've got to build a name for yourself, a reputation for yourself. All you've got to do is learn to exalt Him first, to worship the one who is worthy of worship, to worship the one who deserves everything that we have. All you've got to do is learn to acknowledge Him. To say, God, everything I've got is yours. Every moment is yours. My family is yours. My friends are yours. Every relationship comes from you, God. Let it honor you. Let it go to you, Lord. I believe in you. I give myself to you. I acknowledge you. And I humble myself before you, God. Without you, I am nothing. And so you have everything I've got. Every moment of me. Every gift. Every talent. Every ability. Every penny, Lord. It's yours. I give it to you because I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And so God, lead me and lift me up. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. Let's kill the Babylon mentality. Bible talks about picking up your cross, talks about putting death to yourself and moving on in the way of Jesus. Putting death to yourself means putting death to the Babylon mentality and moving forward in the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is humble. The way of Jesus acknowledges the one that he came from. The way of Jesus exalts the Father. Put death, put to death the Babylon mentality. Exalt God, acknowledge him. Humble yourself and he will lift you up. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We pray these things. Father God, in humility today, that you have done so much for us. God, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for finding us here, God. Thank you for coming for us, Lord. God, I just ask that you would put this to death in me, Father, that I might serve you better, God. Father, I know that every other path leads to chaos and destruction. And so, Father God, guide me on a pathway to peace. Guide me on a pathway. To meaning, Father God, lead me in the purpose you created me with. Lead me in the purpose that honors you, that exalts you, that makes your name great, Father God. My only prayer, Father, is that when they look at me, they would see you. When they look at me, they would be reminded of you, that you would become great, that you would become greater and greater, that I would become less and less. We worship you today. We give you your position back in our hearts today, God. Take the center. Take the throne, Father. We submit before You. You are our King. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen.